the thing that I credit Spain with was me getting more in touch with my desires to be a writer, which was something that I had always dreamt of and thought about. And I loved writing, but because of America, and I don't want to blame it on America, but it's just the way that our system worked. Um, the idea of being a writer didn't seem logical, but didn't seem like something that was an actual profession that I could pursue, maybe a little hobby, but I couldn't say right out like, well, I'm going to be a writer. But being in Spain, where I met so many other Europeans who were chasing their bliss, they were doing things that they wanted to do just because they loved them. And so during all those siesta times, sitting around with myself and my thoughts, I decided in Spain, my second semester there, I am going to be a writer. I'm going to try it. I'm going to do whatever I have to do to make that happen when I go back to the States because I love it. And that's enough of a reason to pursue something. Welcome to Flourish in the Foreign, an award-winning podcast that celebrates, elevates, and affirms the voices and stories of Black women living and thriving abroad, while exploring living abroad as a pathway to wellness. I'm your host, Christine Job, a Black American woman with Trinidadian roots, podcaster, business strategist, and entrepreneur based in Valencia, Spain. Hey everyone, welcome to Flourish in the Foreign. I'm Christine, your host of this here podcast. So happy that you've tuned in this week. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. This is your last opportunity to submit a question for the 100th episode of Flourish in the Foreign, which is a special Ask Me Anything episode. So make sure you get your question in. Go to the description of this episode, click on the Ask Me Anything link, or slide in my DMs, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or just reply to one of the emails I send you if you're part of the newsletter community, and ask me your question. It can be about anything, really. It can be about dating abroad, building a business abroad, living abroad, moving abroad, living in Spain, what have you. So go ahead and do that. The next item of business is another huge milestone for this here podcast. So not only are we hitting 100 episodes of this podcast, but we are also hitting three years of this podcast. And it means so, so much to me. You know, this podcast is a labor of love, but it's labor, three years of labor. All right. So if you love this podcast, if you like this podcast, go ahead and support this here podcast. You can do so by going to buymeacoffee.com slash flourish foreign and buying me a coffee or purchasing an item off the wish list. You can also support the podcast by subscribing to the Flourish in the Foreign YouTube channel. Yes. Go ahead and do that. I'm trying to get to 1,000 subscribers. So go ahead and do that for me. Once we get to 1,000 subscribers, I'm going to put out a poll. Y'all going to decide what I'm going to talk about. I'm going to talk about it on YouTube. Okay? 
And of course, make sure that you share this podcast with all your friends, all your family, and all of your work associates that you like. Yes. Okay. All right. Thank you all so much for your love, your support of this here podcast. I do deeply, deeply appreciate it. You mean so, so much to me. All right. On to the next episode. Season four, episode 11. Today's episode features Lori L. Tharps, who is a journalist and author whose work lands at the intersection of race and popular culture. A public intellectual, Tharp strives to use her words to broaden the conversation about race in America, to challenge racial stereotypes, to dismantle white supremacy, and to celebrate ethnic and cultural diversity whenever possible. Lori is the author of three critically acclaimed nonfiction books that deal with race, culture, and identity. Hair Story, Untangling the Roots of Black Hair in America, Kinky Gaspacho, Life, Love, and Spain, and her most recent, Same Family, Different Colors, Confronting Colorism in America's Diverse Families. Lori's latest venture is Read, Write, and Create, which is a sanctuary for BIPOC writers. It includes a podcast, a blog, writing coaching services, and workshops. Full disclosure, Lori is a client of mine and I just adore her. And I think all of you will as well. So I'm going to let Lori tell you all about it. My name is Lori Tharps and I am currently living in Malaga, Spain. I am 50 years old and I am originally from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I was born and raised in Milwaukee, but I haven't lived there since I left for college. After college, I lived in New York City and Brooklyn, which I consider my hometown only because I feel like Brooklyn raised me. And then after living in New York for about 15 years, I then moved to Philadelphia. So like I said, I grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which was a very white existence for me. It's funny, not really funny, but Milwaukee has the the fame of being one of America's most segregated cities. It's always in the top five of most segregated cities. And my family and I, we always lived in the whiter parts of the city. So much so, I was like 19 before I knew that there was a Latino part of the city. Like I had no idea that there were Mexican people in Milwaukee until I had a summer job when I was 19 and worked at a summer camp that was largely attended by young Latino children. Um, and Milwaukee's not that big of a city, but it just shows how little people cross paths with one another because of how segregated it was. Because of that, when I went to school, what my extracurricular activities, I was often the only Black child in the spaces that I inhabited. And so from a very young age, I was always seeking others, right? I was always looking for people who were also not white, people who were also different. So my best friend happened to be Japanese and Irish, mixed race, Japanese and Irish. I was the one black girl in my private school. So I was also friends with the one Indian girl and the one Korean girl. I was also friends with a lot of white people because that was the majority, but it just seemed that I was always attracted to otherness. And when I started studying Spanish in fifth grade, I very much saw language learning as an opportunity to 
be in this world where this Americanness, this whiteness would not be, you know, privileged in that way. And so from a very early age, I really found my role models in people like Josephine Baker, Black people who had left the United States, traveled to Europe and found this much more accepting society. So literally, I was obsessed with Josephine Baker. I had her biographies. I knew everything about her. I wanted my own rainbow coalition of children, even my play. Like I was, I always had adopted stuffed animals from all over the world. Like they all had this backstory. It was really insane how much <laughs> I was just really looking at her life. And I can neither sing nor dance, uh, but I still really thought I was going to have that Josephine Baker experience and have this sort of fabulous life in Europe. But because I was taking Spanish, I just always assumed from a really early age that Spain was going to be my Paris, like it was for Josephine. By the time I was applying for colleges, where people would go to a college tour and be like, oh, do you have this major? I'd be like, what's your study abroad program like? Like, I didn't even know what I was going to study. I just wanted to make sure that the schools had really good study abroad programs. And that was going to be my vision for myself. I didn't have, oh, I'm going to be this, or I'm going to do this per se. I had a million ideas of what I wanted to do and be. But like fundamental was this idea that I had to get out of this country. And I did have the experience of, I was an exchange student in Morocco when I was in high school. And that cemented this knowledge that yes, the United States is a hot mess. And once you leave, you can be your true self because you're not restricted by these racial rules that say as a black person, this is what you have to be like. This is where you're allowed to go. This is how you have to talk, speak, act, eat, fill in the blank. And Morocco was just, it was the most amazing experience. One, because the culture is amazing. And I lived with a really cool family. It was very challenging. I don't speak Arabic. The family I stayed with only spoke Arabic. But what it showed me was that there was another way to live down to the food that you speak, but also even something as basic as like, not using silverware and using your hands to eat. Like it fully challenged my idea of what it meant to just exist, that it didn't have to be the way it was in the United States, which again, for me felt really restrictive. So by the time I went to college, I was like, yes, must leave. And I didn't have a fully formed thought of, oh, I'm going to live outside the United States permanently. It was just like, I need to get out of the United States and see some world. I asked Lori to describe to us her university experience and her experience studying abroad. Because I love foreign languages and the idea of travel, I just thought I was going to be a polyglot. That was my goal. I had a different career path every other week, a different major. To this day, my mom is like, what did you major in again? You changed your mind so much. I don't even know what you did in college. But I started studying German when I was a freshman. I continued studying Spanish. So I was like in high-level Spanish classes and entry-level German and so my plan was to go to a German-speaking country for a semester and a Spanish-speaking country for a semester. So I narrowed it down to going to Austria and for a semester and, and Spain for a semester. But my study abroad advisor at the time told me that if my goal was to improve my language, I really should pick one country for the year because you know, after a semester you'll just start getting good with the language and then to switch to another country, you're not going to get the benefit of what you really want. Because I had much more invested in Spanish, I ended up going to Spain, to Salamanca, Spain. 
And by that point, I had declared my major in education. And the program I went to, I chose Salamanca. Salamanca is about two hours northwest of Madrid. Uh, I'd never heard of it. And the only reason I chose to go there is because the program I went on, I went to Smith College. Smith has their own program in Spain, in Cordoba, Spain. But I was so determined to have my own unique experience, not with other Smithies. I wanted to like really be forced to acclimate to the Spanish environment, not rely on having built-in friends. So um, I found this program that would allow me to take courses directly at the University of Salamanca where I could take education classes. Because I was such a flake and had taken so many random classes in my first two years, if I didn't take education credits during my junior year, I wouldn't have graduated on time. So study abroad was predicated on me being able to continue on with my major. And most people probably know this, but if you go to Spain, most likely the classes you're going to take are like Spanish literature, Spanish history, Spanish culture. They just, it's not go learn biology in Spain. It's, oh, you're obviously want to learn something about Spanish culture. And I have nothing against Spanish culture, but I was like, I still just want to get my education credits in Spain. So there was a program that allowed me to do that. And my experience in Salamanca was really enhanced by the fact that I actually took German at the university. So I was taking German in Spanish, which was challenging, but interesting. And I was able to take education, a really awesome education class as well, an international education, like comparative education, that's what it was called as well, which was just really great. And I think obviously my Spanish improved a lot more than had I been just taking classes with other Americans, which is what the uh, larger majority of students who are on that same program did. Just to remind people, this was in the early 1990s that I was in Salamanca. And I, again, had done no real research. Again, the internet was not a thing. So I had done no real research on what Salamanca was like. And for the first two weeks in country, we were in Madrid. So we had an orientation in Madrid. And there was basically two groups of students in this program, those who would be staying in Madrid and those who would be going to Salamanca. So those first two weeks in Madrid were, were everything I had fantasized about. Madrid just blew my mind. It was romantic. It was passionate. It was, there was just, I just remember literally seeing like young people like kissing in the parks at night and they're just in the sangria was flowing and we were free and things happened all night long as opposed to, you know, I'm from Wisconsin. And then I went to school in this small town in Western Massachusetts where the 7-Eleven was the big thing to do at night and it closed at nine. So like the fact that there was like life happening and we were clubbing and dancing and I'm not a partier. Like I don't drink. I've never drank. I have epilepsy. So drinking isn't a thing for me. Like I can't do that even if I wanted to, but still the nightlife dancing and just, it felt so freeing and nobody was like, oh, black people don't do that. Or the black people go to this club and the white people. No, there, it just was like freedom. That's what it felt like to me. And the program, they took us to a bunch of little trips. We went to Segovia, we went to Toledo. We saw things and I was like, yes, I am home. I have found my happy place. And then we went to Salamanca. You know, when you're going abroad or any kind of experience like that, you become best friends right away. You know, in those first two weeks, I had made all these great friends. We all went out together at night and we were staying in a, a dormitory together. 
And they were all telling me, don't go to Salamanca, switch, switch into the Madrid program. Yeah, I'm going to stay here with you guys. But of course, I couldn't switch. You know, it, it just wasn't even possible at that late stage in the game. So um, when I got to Salamanca, I was so depressed because Salamanca is a university town, but it's a town compared to the vibrancy of Madrid. And it's very monochromatic in even the buildings and the architecture and the landscape. It's all kind of the same salmon colored. Some people consider that beautiful. I personally, I like color. And in my mind, I thought Spain, and again, the internet didn't exist. I could have probably done more research, but I just had this idea of Spain as being colorful and vibrant. Salamanca is like your grandma. It's just, it's old and stately and beautiful, but it's not colorful. And I thrive on color and that is, there's no greenery. There's just no color. And so it's gorgeous architecture. The University of Salamanca is like the oldest university in Europe. I mean, it's stately and significant and historical, but I just did not find myself like stimulated by the environment in the same way I was in Madrid. And so the experience made me really, really get to know myself a lot more. One, because I had to fight this severe sense of disappointment. Not only was it visually not as appealing as I had hoped, and especially compared to Madrid, it's kind of like dropping somebody in New York City as like orientation and then taking them to Wisconsin and being like, this is where you're going to live. You're like, oh, okay, I can get used to this. So there was that. I was no longer with these great, exciting friends that I had. And then also, you know, my whole idea of being in a place where race wasn't going to be an issue, where I could be myself was thrown on his head because everywhere I went in Salamanca, again, a smaller town, even though it's got lots of foreign students, it's still a small town in Spain. Everywhere I went, people would point at me and say, Morena, call me out. Now, to be fair, I had a friend who was tall and blonde, and she had the same experience. It was like, Rubia. So it, I recognized that it wasn't, oh, this is racism. It was more like, ooh, these people have to open their mouths and say, ooh, look, she's different. He's different. She, you know, whatever the difference was, you were going to get called out. As a young, hopeful Black girl hoping that she was going to have her Josephine Baker experience where it was going to be all acceptance and blending in, that did not happen. And I spent a lot of time buying clothes that I thought would be help me fit in more. Because again, Spaniards were wearing conservative blue jeans, a nice dark sweater, and a little scarf around their neck tied just so. And I was wearing red jeans and like bright colors. And I had a scarf, but it was more like a one of those multicolored African print or Indian batiks. And I was like, I'm wearing jeans and a scarf. Why do not people think I'm Spanish? I just couldn't wrap my mind around why I didn't blend in. And so that was just a lot of me having to reconcile expectations with reality. And the family that I stayed with, um, you could stay with the host family or you could live in an apartment. First semester, I stayed with the host family. And my host mother, again, because I had studied abroad and stayed with a family in Morocco in high school and 
the whole point of that program was really to integrate. You call them your host mother and your host sister and brother. And this was like a woman who was divorced, needed money. And so she took students in. She had two teenage kids, but they were like, I don't even know. I think there were like four or five of us students at the, at the house at the same time. We could only use the water up to a certain time. If we weren't home at a certain time, we couldn't eat. It wasn't something where we could have our own independence. And this sounds terrible, but this woman, I, she was so stressed. And I have so much more empathy now as a mother myself with teenagers. But whenever she would get stressed, she would like oversalt her food. And there was no oven. She made everything but the Presto Fry Daddy. So everything was deep fried. Even the vegetables were cooked through deep frying methods. And then highly salted with rock salt which I literally is like, I'm going to die. I'm literally going to die of either like cholesterol, like whatever you die from of like deep fried. I remember even the, the peppers were deep fried and, or like salt. And I was like, I'm a black woman. I cannot eat all this salt and deep fried foods. This is not what I should be doing. So even that was like, you know, and you're like, oh, the Spanish food's so good. It was not, it was horrible in this woman's house. And um, I didn't have enough money to go eat out every day. And again, in the 90s, Spain didn't have a foodie culture and restaurants. The good restaurant in Salamanca was a bar where you could get a pork sandwich. Or it could be a pig ear sandwich or maybe a pork filet sandwich. So, so there weren't like just it just the expectations of what my life was going to be. I'm going to study abroad were so different from what reality was. So all that to say it took me an entire semester to rearrange my expectations, to figure out what was good and how to focus on that. And the really good thing that came out of my experience in Salamanca was that because we had so much siesta time, downtime, which was also challenging for me, I have always been a high achieving, doing a lot of things at the same time. And oh my goodness, I could not stand the idea that the whole city shut down for three hours for lunch and siesta time. And I was like, why can't I go shopping now? Why can't I do this now? Everything's closed. I can't even go to the bank. The bank is closed. So learning how to be okay with being still and being quiet and being with myself was a big deal. And so um, I had to continue learning for myself. What do you want of this experience? Are you going to just be depressed and sad the whole time? Are you going to regret coming here? Are you going to waste this opportunity? Or are you going to take advantage? And so that that was like a big learning experience for me, put aside expectations. And so the big like thing that came out of that experience for me, I think the thing that I credit Spain with was me getting more in touch with my desires to be a writer, which was something that I had always dreamt of and thought about. And I loved writing, but because of America, and I don't want to blame it on America, but it's just the way that our system worked. Um, the idea of being a writer didn't seem logical. It didn't seem like something that was an actual profession that I could pursue, maybe a little hobby, but I couldn't say right out, like, I'm going to be a writer. But being in Spain where I met so many other Europeans who were chasing their bliss, they were doing things that they wanted to do just because they loved them. And so during all those siesta times, sitting around with myself and my thoughts, 
I decided in Spain, my second semester there, I am going to be a writer. I'm going to try it. I'm going to do whatever I have to do to make that happen when I go back to the States because I love it. And that's enough of a reason to pursue something. So Lori's experience of studying abroad is not unusual, truly. I've heard so many stories of studying abroad being a culture shock of it not being all that you signed up for, because it is typically a very intense level of immersion. But that was only Lori's first semester in Salamanca. So I asked her, how was the second semester in Salamanca? So second semester in Spain was actually really, it really felt like a new beginning. I was fortunate that my sister was living in Belgium at the time. So I didn't go back to the States for the holidays. I went to Brussels and my my sister was in the military. We went to Paris, we went to Germany, and it was this really exciting adventure, which again, rekindled my excitement for being abroad. And when I came back to Spain, I was like, Lori, You have wanted this your entire life. You are not going to feel sorry for yourself. This is not what you expected, but it's still amazing. So take advantage. And so second semester, I moved out of the Senora's house and got two roommates, one American, one Spanish woman. And we started cooking. And I was like, I'm going to be a writer. This is what I've chosen to do. This is my new purpose in life. And so during all those siesta times, <laughs> I'm sorry, I wrote a lot of songs. Like I took guitar lessons. I found a guitar teacher. I wrote a lot of sad songs in Spanish and English and just embraced like all things creativity and language and writing and being my free whole self. And I actually met a boy at, who is now my husband. And so everything about second semester was like me letting go of expectations, like taking advantage of everything that Spain could offer me. Uh, the program I was on took us on some trips. We went to Portugal. I fell in love with Lisbon. We went to Granada and other places in the south of Spain where I was like, oh, this is where I wanted to be. I didn't realize that Spain was a big country and there's parts that look colorful and bright and have more of a like an Arabic influence that really felt like comforting to me. So I just really enjoyed the second semester. And I just tell myself and anybody who asked, like, it took me a semester to get acclimated. And even though people continue to point out that I was La Morena or Chocolate, different things that people called me, they even called me Colacao, which is the hot chocolate in Spain. Um, it, it's not like it bounced off my back or anything like that, but I took it as part of the experience. And really, by the time I left Spain, I was very grateful for all of the wonderful things that I learned about myself more than anything else. I did not think I would ever come back to Spain, to be honest, because I did find all of the name calling and pointing and the fixation on blackness to be annoying And that's what I thought. I didn't find, I would never have said, oh, it's a racist country. I would have said it's an annoying country where people don't understand diversity at all. And I don't want to live like that. I just don't want to live walking around having to like be stared at, pointed at, or answer people's questions, like dumb questions. Like, do you know Michael Jackson? You look just like Naomi Campbell. Do you know her? Can you dance like Michael Jackson? Tracy Chapman, tell me everything about her. You know, whatever it was, it was just like, 
over and over the same type of things and people dressing up in blackface during carnival time. I was like, I respect this culture. I, there was so much that I loved, but it's not any place I need to come back to anytime soon. Same as last words, because I married a Spaniard. However, I was, again, there was lots that I loved. I was grateful for who I became by the end of that semester. Again, really able to tap into my desires, able to say, this is what's important to me and I can claim that and ready to go back to the United States and pursue my promise to myself to be a writer. And that's what, that's how I left Spain with those kind of like knowledge about myself and that real desire and passion to say, I'm going to try to be a writer because it's what I love more than anything else. And I deserve to, to see if I can make that work. After Lori's roller coaster of an experience in Spain, I asked her, what did she do once she returned stateside? So when I came back from Spain, I had one more year of college and I was an education major and I toyed with the idea of becoming an English major. I went to a liberal arts college, so there were no professional writing or anything like that classes. And my parents thought I was hilarious thinking I was going to switch my major with one year left to go because they were not about to pay for a fifth year of college. So I finished my degree in education and just basically decided if I'm going to be a writer, I need to be a writer that has a salary, paycheck, something. So I decided that I would pursue journalism. And so I really just made it up in my mind. Again, my college didn't have a journalism degree or anything like that. I only had one year left. So as soon as I got back, I got an internship at the regional magazine in Milwaukee. That was life-changing because I realized I want to be a journalist, but I want to be a magazine journalist. When I went back to college for my final year, I took every internship possible at the local publications all around the small town that this college was in. And I graduated. I tried to move to New York City to work in magazine journalism. I actually did get a couple of job offers at magazines, but they paid so little. And I don't come from many, so my parents were not going to subsidize a lifestyle. So I pivoted into public relations instead of journalism, where I got a great corporate job at a Madison Avenue PR firm, worked with major companies like Eminem Mars and Disney Cruise Line, and really learned a lot about the media industry. But it was like, I was about to say something awful, but it was like marrying the brother when you wanted the other brother. It was like, I was in this industry. I was like, journalism adjacent and it just made it worse right because what i really wanted was to be a journalist and instead i was the person feeding journalists stories about candy bars and cruise lines and we had a, a melba toast was one of my clients it's really hard to get excited about dry bread that was my life and so that actually compelled me to again it was like go back to those feelings from spain pursue your passions at all costs so I applied to journalism school, like I went to Columbia University and got my master's degree in journalism and spent the next decade writing for different publications. I started working at Vibe and then I ended up working at Entertainment Weekly. So I was really on the entertainment journalism path, which was exciting and fun. I got married somewhere in there. I was at Entertainment Weekly when I got pregnant and they were about to send me to LA for they were starting to send their correspondence to spend three months in LA. I was like, I have a new baby. Like, this is not going to happen. So I 
retired from entertainment journalism and segued into more lifestyle magazine writing and worked for Essence for a long time, like just writing for Essence and other more lifestyle parenting magazines, and basically spent the next decade as a magazine journalist and enjoying my life immensely. At that In that decade, I also wrote two books. I wrote my first book with my friend, another journalist called Hair Story, Untangling the Roots of Black Hair in America. That book started out as my thesis in journalism school. And I don't think if anybody had told me that writing about black hair in grad school would change my the trajectory of my professional life, I would not have believed you. But I have since been writing about black hair continuously, basically for the last 20 years. So I also wrote a memoir about my life with my Spanish husband and going to Spain called Kingy Gaspacho. And after my second child was born, we moved to Philadelphia because New York was just too expensive to raise children. My husband is a teacher. And at that point, I was basically just a freelance writer and editor. And so we moved to Philadelphia and I segued into academia where I taught in the journalism department. So I spent the last uh, 13 years teaching journalism, continuing to write and work as a freelance journalist. And I wrote two more books in that time. I wrote a novel and then I wrote another book about global colorism. So basically race and identity were the things that I, that interested me. And so that's what I continued to write about. So kind of a intersection of pop culture, race and identity was where my sweet spot was in terms of writing. And that was our life. I ended up having one more child. So I have three children with a 10 year spread in between. So I have a 21-year-old, an 18-year-old, and an 11-year-old, two boys and a girl. Originally, my husband and I thought we'll live in the States and we'll spend our summers in Spain so that our children will know their other culture. You know, the economy, it always seemed to make sense to be in the United States. Spain didn't have the same level of opportunities for either my husband or myself. But Kids are expensive. And so our plans to like, oh, we'll just be that family that goes to Spain every summer did not happen because, you know, plane tickets are expensive. It used to be like, I'd buy my ticket, my husband would buy his ticket, off we would go. Then it was like one kid. It was like still totally doable. Then you get two kids and then you get three kids. It's, oh my goodness, we're not going to Spain. We're not even going to like New Jersey. That's too expensive. It's like just too much. So there became long periods of time where we would not go to Spain. So my poor husband was not seeing his family and life is busy. Just it's like one year compounds upon the next. And you're like, wait a minute. Again, my husband hasn't seen his family in five years and that's, that's terrible. So in 2014, I had the opportunity to take a group of students from Temple where I was working to London and I was the faculty advisor, and it was a, it's a six-week program. Every year, Temple spent, sends another faculty member to teach and to guide these students on their programming. Until so that summer, my husband and my children, we all went to London. I taught, and again, I was very happy to be able to show my children another country. They'd all, except for my daughter, who was only two at the time. My sons had been to Spain when they were babies, but it had been a long time. So... London, study abroad, it totally rekindled all of my desires to have a more global international life. My husband was able to take the kids and go to Spain while I was teaching in London. It was a wonderful experience. 
that experience was, I had the opportunity to do that trip again in 2017, again, taking the students to London. And so each time we would go to London, my husband would take the kids to Spain and he would get really homesick. And he would say, my parents are getting old. I can't do this anymore where I don't see my parents for large chunks of time. And so in 2017, we started contemplating, could we leave the United States? The first conversation was about perhaps we could live in England as a halfway point, even though it's not really halfway, but I could continue to work in English and he could get to Spain in a matter of hours. So that was the idea. And again, because we had these little mini six-week immersion experiences, we were like, yeah, we could do London. This is a great city. Not realizing that if we moved to London, we'd be poor as church mice and would not live in the fine accommodations that my college had put us up in while we were there. And as it turned out, we couldn't get jobs in academia, which is what we were trying to do. But this time, my husband was also teaching in academia. So we put it on hold. In 2019, I got a fellowship to study the Black experience in Spain for the summer. And we actually went to Cadiz for six weeks and had an amazing time. We stayed in an apartment in the old city of Cadiz and lived like Spaniards do. And that was the first time I had done that since my college experience. Even though over the years, I have been going back and forth to visit my husband's family who live in Cadiz, but in a small town in the, not in the city of Cadiz, but out in the region of Cadiz. And, but it was like visiting your in-laws, right? You go stay with your in-laws. It wasn't like living in Spain, even though we would go do traditional things, but it was like, I'm in their back bedroom and there was no like lifestyle experience different. It was just visiting, right? So that experience in 2019, we Again, I was doing research on the Black experience in Spain, so I had reason to speak to a lot of Black American expats who had moved to Spain and really got this idea that things had changed a lot since I had lived in Salamanca, that whole idea of feeling stared at, looked at, pointed at, no concept of what it means to be Black and having that kind of those questions and always having to be the educator. And so at the end of that six-week summer, I said to my husband, I actually think I could live in Spain. So maybe we should consider it. And the way we approached it was, let me apply for sabbatical from my job. I had made tenure by that point. So I had a job for life. So the idea to just walk away from that seemed very foolish. So I said, let's just take it one step at a time. And I will apply for sabbatical, which I was eligible for at that point. And so I applied for sabbatical and got it. And that was the year of 2020. And we all know what happened in 2020. So all the plans we had made, we had gotten our kids schooling in Cadiz. We had gotten an apartment. We'd gotten everything. Like we had, everything was perfect for us to go. And then of course the pandemic hit and the sabbatical wasn't canceled, but the, the trip was canceled. And so during the pandemic, like I think most people who had big plans for that year, we basically thought it was all over because my son would have been a senior the following year. We could not take a sabbatical the next year. I mean, because everybody said, it's canceled. You can go next year. Okay, fine. But we really couldn't. There was a lot of things up in the air. My husband's job was just holding it for a year. It wasn't like he could just take another year off. Again, my son was going to be a senior in high school. We couldn't take him out this senior year. So basically, we spent a morning, like everybody else during the pandemic, like this just isn't going to happen. But then 
somewhere in the middle of the pandemic, I actually said to my husband, what if we stopped trying to move to Spain and we just moved? What if we just do it? What if we just do it? Because one, America has lost its everlasting mind. You know, Black Lives Matter was just popping off. The pandemic was making us realize that we could all die tomorrow. Like just, I think everybody knows that the pandemic made everybody reevaluate what was important. And within nine months, we had quit our jobs, sold all our stuff, got on a plane and moved to Malaga, Spain. Hey, everyone. I hope you're enjoying this episode of Flourish in the Foreign. And if you are, be sure to support this podcast by going to buymeacoffee.com slash flourish foreign and buying me a coffee. You can also write a review of the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, and anywhere else you listen to the show. Thank you so much for listening and supporting. Now, back to the episode. So, Lori is a Black American woman, and her husband is a Spanish man from Cadiz. So I asked her to share with us, what is it like being in an intercultural Marriage. I named my my memoir Kiki Gaspacho because it was like two words that don't make sense together. There's just no reason that those two words should be together. And that's how people looked at my husband and I. I'm a Black American woman from a major city and he's from a small fishing town in the south of Spain. Why would we be together? What would we have in common? But I think the first thing that brought us together, again, we met in German class. Like I met him in my German class in Salamanca. So we both loved languages. We both loved other cultures. And so we had a lot to talk about. And we, like our values were very similar. We both loved our families very much. Like our values were centered around family being the most important thing. So just as an example for that, this is something that people often fight about when they come from different cultures or families that are on opposite sides of the world or wherever they may be. So I was like, what do you do on holidays? Who has to give up something? We were both so committed to our families and how important they were until we had children. Like there was no question. I was going home to my family and he was going home to his family. And we'd be like, have fun. Like you do you, because I don't want to be the reason you can't be with your family on the holiday. And we would come back in January and be like, how was it? And it was great. And there was no animosity and no difficulty there because, again, we both understood the importance of tradition and family. And I'm like, I'll see you in January. I don't care that you're not with me with my family when I'm doing my family stuff. And really and truly, he didn't care that I wasn't there. We both understood the importance of family. And the other thing, people always want to know, what was it like? How did his family treat you? because you're a black person, was there any problem with that? And for the most part, his his nuclear family, it wasn't a problem. My husband always says it was more of a problem if you were an American than you were black, simply because you took him away from his family. And if people are familiar with Spanish culture, family is so important and people don't tend to move far away from the family unit. Like my husband's brother lives in the same town as his parents. His sister lives with his parents still. And his other brother up until recently, also just lived a couple hours away. Weekends were for family meals, always. You never have an occasion. You just, like, families together as often as possible. So 
I think the difficulty of me being in that family was more just my Americanness. The black thing didn't really come up except his grandmother on his father's side. His whole family was like warning him, don't have Lori meet grandma because she may say something racist. I did meet her and she died probably almost 20 years ago. She wasn't very talkative. So I, I don't have any examples of people being mean to me. My husband told me that one time that she was rude to me because she wasn't speaking to me like directly. And I was like, oh, that was rude. I, don't know. I just thought she was old and feeble. I didn't see it as anything rude. So I have never had any experiences with his family members that made me think, oh my goodness, these people are racist or they don't accept me. There's been some like maybe a miscommunication or a racist joke told, but not to me. It was just more like using language that I'm like, that's racist. You should not use that term. There's certain words just embedded or phrases in the Spanish language that are racist. And I'll call somebody on it and they'll be like, oh, no, Lori, it's not racist. I was like, there's a phrase that literally says if someone's doing hard work, it says that's the work of Negroes. I was like, that's racist. No, it doesn't mean that. I'm like, but it does. That kind of thing where I'm like teaching and trying to share, but I haven't ever had an experience where I felt anybody in the family had a problem with me as a black person. And likewise, my family with him, I am not the first person to marry a non black person in my extended family. And I have an extremely large extended family. So there really wasn't any trauma or drama on my side of the family bringing him home. My father had a little bit of, (laughs) I remember my father still trying to introduce me to eligible black men. He didn't take this relationship that seriously. And it took us seven years before we got married. We were back and forth, me going back to Spain, him going to this, coming to the States. And he eventually ended up coming to the States and staying because he majored in English and had always thought when he graduated, he would go to an English speaking country. Originally, he thought he would go to England. But once he met me, he's like, I'll come to the States. And so we were courting, so to speak, for yeah, over seven years before we actually decided to get married. And our relationship really is, you know, we were friends. Again, we were friends. And we were definitely attracted to each other from the beginning. But we really had a solid friendship. And like I said, very shared values that I think is what keeps us connected. We also both really love food. <laughs> like we both really love to eat. And we have these random like coincidences of certain things. Like for both of us, the idea of camping is abhorrent. Like why would you sleep outside? Like bugs and hard ground. Like no, like just the idea of camping just is horrendous. And we both have siblings who love camping. And we're both like, uh-uh, no. We're like, is there a cabin with a jacuzzi? We'll go. But other than that, no. So there's a lot that we have in common that if you just ignore the exterior, and there are things that are different because culturally it just is, but there's way more foundationally that we have in common that keeps us together. I asked Lori to share with us her experience raising bicultural, bilingual children in the United States and now abroad. Yeah, so... Because of my work, I write about race and identity. That's what I do. That's what I study. That's what I write about. My last book is called Same Family, Different Colors. And it really was inspired by my own parenting journey. 
because not only are my children biracial, bilingual, bicultural, they also look different. My eldest son looks far more like African American. He's got the darkest skin, kinkiest hair. My middle son is very pale with much looser curled hair. And my daughter, seriously, people were like, did you adopt your daughter from China? Like when she was a baby, she was seriously, people would ask me the dumbest questions about my daughter, but she was super milky white pale and had super straight black hair. Just as an epilogue, I just started locking her hair last week. So that has changed. However, it took a long time for her melanin to come in and her kinks to come in. So as a parent, my parenting journey had to be very intentional around identity. It had to be intentional because they didn't all look the same and I couldn't give the same spiel all the time because one kid, it's give them the talk and the other kid, it's people might not know you're black. Uh, but you are. And so you need to embrace your identity. So there was a lot to to take in. And that's why I wrote the book, because I wanted to have an excuse to ask other parents to ask experts, how do you do this? How do you make sure that you are raising your children the right way when they don't fit into a perfect identity box, when you can't look at them and know right away what they are, so to speak, because you don't want them to feel that there's something deficient in them because they don't, quote unquote, look like one thing. I subscribe to the and, not have. Life children are not fractions of something. They are Black and Spanish. And in the United States, making a child be proudly Black has to be an intentional exercise. You cannot leave that up to chance. I was not raised with a proud intentionality. And it took me many years to be proudly Black. I was like neutrally black. I wasn't ashamed to be black. I never wanted to be white. I was never the girl with the towel on her head being like, ooh, look at my hair move. I want green eyes. None of that. But what I thought was that I was supposed to be black in a quiet way. And so not to call attention to my blackness, to just be as good as or the same as the white people. And so I wanted to make sure that my children were not that because underneath that, there's an obvious shame of your blackness if you think you should keep it under wraps, right? And so I wanted my children (laughs) who were mistaken for Asian to be proudly black. I wanted them to have no question that their blackness was the best part of them, right? And so I just was very intentional about the media that was in our house, the books, everything had to have black people in it. And if it didn't have black people, it could not be a white dominant thing, anything. And the stories that I told them and the messaging that I gave them was all around a very proud black aesthetic. Um, We didn't celebrate Kwanzaa. We weren't like black nationalists. I don't want to make it sound like that. It was just that black is beautiful. Black is wonderful. Look at these amazing black scholars. Look at these amazing black dancers. And to this day, my kids, like, they're like, (laughs) they make fun of me or they think that they'll get something from me. Like, my son wanted to watch soccer. He was like, Mom, the black people are playing soccer. So you should let me watch this because it is going to help me with my identity formation. Because they're like, Isn't that what you taught us, Mom? I was like, Okay, never mind. But they got the message. And the Spanish part growing up in the States, my husband, he never spoke to them in English. Like they, my sons didn't even know my husband spoke English until they were like six, even though he and I speak English together. But he was so intentional that they would not hear him speak English. And he would never, not even one little time, such that one time we were in the car 
and I was driving and I did something foolish. I don't know what it was, but my husband yelled at me in English and my kids in the backseat, they were like, Poppy, you speak English? <laughs> they were like, what? Y'all just real famous. <laughs> how is that possible? But that just shows you how this works, like how the brain works, how these children intake this information. I think that's like the most important thing was the language. You know, he gave them that. And so when they would go visit Spain, it wasn't like they couldn't speak to their grandparents and their aunties and uncles and cousins. And also the food. He made sure that we would eat. Spanish cuisine is not even like Thing. It's like they eat chicken, we eat chicken, they eat potatoes and eggs and all these things. But there are certain things like green olives, which most little children are not trying to eat green olives. My children ate green olives from jump. The flavors that were distinctly Spanish or you'll get a shrimp with eyes on it. It's not like they're all perfectly peeled like they are in the United States. He made sure that they were used to that so they didn't do the recoil of like my own mother's like, oh, they've got beady eyes. Oh, my goodness. I'm not going to eat that. Whereas my children are like, Nana, just picking off and you suck the head. It's no big deal. So he made sure that the intricacies, like the nuances of everyday culture would not feel foreign to them so that when we did go back and forth, it wasn't a like, what is this thing? Why? What is this food? It's so different. None of that whatsoever. So now that they're in Spain. And only two of my three children are here with me. The transition was not as hard as I feared it would be for them because of everything my husband had done to make sure that they were familiar with their Spanish culture. And in 2022, 2021, like where we are, like, Spanish culture is not so distinct from American culture. It's not like we went to Morocco. Like when I was in Morocco, we had to, I had to relearn everything from how you eat how you greet somebody, even to how you make your bed, which was fascinating to me that the way you made your bed was different, right? Like how many ways can you make a bed? Apparently there's more than one. And so in Spain, it's not that different. And once you have the language, and again, you know, the food and the basics, they have had no problem with that. One of the main reasons we brought them to Spain was so that they could experience their other culture, to live it, to be in it. And Decide for themselves, where do they feel most themselves? I've said clearly to my sons, if you guys want to live in the States, lucky you have two passports, so you can do either thing. But I want you to at least have been able to say, I lived in Spain. Like I lived here. I experienced real life here. And I can make that choice for myself. So the decision to leave the United States wasn't like, oh, we're fleeing all the unrest or the Trump supporters or any of that. Because Spain has its own problems too. It's not like this is a perfect place by any stretch. Really guiding me was if we don't do this now, our children won't have that immersive experience into their own culture. And the last thing I wanted was for my children to look at me as adults and say, why didn't you give us that experience as our parents? Departure day. It's always so crazy. And Lori's story is no different, which it, it tracks. That's how it typically goes, at least on this podcast. And so I asked Lori to share with all of you her day of departure from the United States and the day of arrival in Malaga, Spain. The day we left the United States was probably one of the most traumatizing days of my entire life. We had prepared for this move. As I had mentioned earlier, we made the decision and then just put a plan in action and activated the plan. We had list upon list of to do things to make this happen. And 
when I look back on it, we did it in less than a year, like in nine months, we completely upended our lives. And the only way we could make it happen was to be hyper organized. When I say we had lists, to do lists on massive sheets of paper hung up all over the house, and everybody had to be like on point. That being said, somehow we just didn't get the timing right to get rid of all of our furniture and things that we weren't taking with us. Like we had a container ship to take all of our stuff, and that was packed and gone like a week before we left. So everything that was going to be taken to Spain was gone. And we still had a house full of furniture, clothes, random stuff. Because you're like, wait, what? Okay, we took our stuff. But now what do we do with all this other stuff? And in my head, we were going to have rummage sales or donate it. But it just, we ran out of time. So the day that we left, like I, the night before we left, I went to bed at three in the morning in my clothes on a bed with no sheets on it and wrote in my journal, we're not going to make it. We're just not going to make it. It's not going to happen. There's just no way. I'm looking around my room. There's stuff all over still. And so I think we slept for like two hours and started going to the dump and to the Goodwill where you can donate things and just took trip after trip. And the problem was our plane didn't leave until probably like six o'clock in the evening, but we lived in Philadelphia and we were flying out of Newark. So that was an hour and a half. And then on top of that, we had to get COVID tested before. So that was an hour and a half because you had to test and then wait for those results. Leaving in a pandemic was not easy. The timer was just ticking. We couldn't push it a little bit because of all these things that were pending and you couldn't make the trip to Newark any shorter. And you had a scheduled time for the COVID test as well. So you couldn't miss that as either. So literally you had to drag me out of the house and just say, you're just going to have to leave it. It was a rental house. So someone was going to, we weren't literally the last people, but we weren't going to get a security deposit back if we left stuff all over the place. But my neighbor, who's a friend of mine had to be like, you just have to leave it, just go. So I left, we had done as much as we could, but there was furniture in the house and there were clothes in the closets. I mean, it was pandemonium. It was crazy. I left my ukulele, (laughs) my ukulele, which I had started to learn how to play during the pandemic. I left my ukulele in the house. I was so sad. And so there was like PTSD. It was like, grab what you can and go. And so it On the one hand, it was a lesson in it's just stuff, right? What do you need to start this new life? You need yourself. You need your children. You need a passport. Just go. And so we did. And I literally had tears, not because I was going to miss anything, but because it just felt so haphazard. Like I, that was up until then, like I said, we had been very organized. Everything was hitting it. Boom cross that off the list, cross that off the list, cross that off the list. And this was just ridiculous. It was not the way I do things. And it was just like, I can't believe this is how we're leaving things. And, you know, I had to leave my key with my neighbor and I called those buy nothing groups. Whereas, look, if you want anything in this house, you can come get it or it's going to be open for X amount of days. Just come and take whatever you want out of it. But once we got to the airport, it was like, it's done. We're gone. And really from that point on, again, because we had planned everything so perfectly, got our COVID test. Of course, none of us had COVID. 
got through. We flew Lufthansa, flew from Newark to Germany. I was petrified that we were all going to get COVID and the whole thing was going to go up in smoke, right? Wouldn't that just teach me a lesson? But Lufthansa was amazing. Their COVID protocols were really on point. I felt very safe with my family. Everybody was at that point was very, everybody was masked and they were like, made sure people stayed masked for the whole trip. And we landed in Malaga the next day. And we had chosen Malaga site unseen. We chose it because it matched all of the criteria we wanted. There's an international airport. It was more international city than my husband's Vincadis, where my husband's family was. But it was close enough to his family that we could get there with a two-hour drive. It has a university. Like, it had all of the criteria. But again, we'd never been there. So we were just going on faith. We had contracted with a, a real estate agency to help us find a temporary apartment, but we had an Airbnb to land in for a month when we first got there. And we were not in Malaga City. We were in a city out like in the province of Malaga in called Ben Almadena. And on paper, Ben Almadena sounded like it had everything we wanted. And the morning we got to our Airbnb from the airport, it was a sunny day. And the apartment, the Airbnb apartment was beautiful. And there was a pool in part of the building outside. And it just felt like we did the right thing. It felt so, I just breathed a sigh of relief. Like we did it. And again, it was another, it was like I said, it was a lesson of all the stuff. We didn't need that. We did what we needed to do and we got there and it was like 80 degrees. This was in May. It was an unseasonably warm day. We went swimming the next morning. And just got busy starting like, what's our life going to be like here? We had to find an apartment and everything like that. And that actually, it took us a minute. And we ended up deciding that Ben Almadena wasn't the place for us for different reasons. And we ended up going into Malaga City, like the city of Malaga, and finding a perfect place in a perfect neighborhood that was just absolutely everything about it. We just felt right. And that was one thing for anybody listening. My husband and I had very clear requirements for how we were going to live. And this was such a major move and such a major decision that we were not willing to sacrifice any anything that was a must have on our list. And I don't mean like a swimming pool or like a view to the ocean. No, more like I have to be, I'm not going to drive. I'm not driving in Spain. So I need to be in a neighborhood that's walkable. I want to walk to a cafe. I want public transportation. Like I want my life to be as easy as possible in the way that my dream life, which is to live someplace where I don't need a car. So things like that. So we found that place and it's lovely and wonderful. And there's space for everybody. I needed a room for my writing and my own office space. I, the last like three years in the States, I had to work in the basement, which is the most depressing thing ever, but it was the only space in the house that we had. And I was like, if I am moving to Europe to chase this life that I've always wanted to be a global writer, to be an untethered creative writer, then I need a writing space. And our apartment, I'm sitting in here right now in my home office. So we chose this place we took our time finding the right space. And again, we had to let go of expectations because on paper, Ben Almadena was going to be the place for us. But it wasn't. It just wasn't. And I can't say it, it was to this or it was to that. It just didn't feel like home. 
It did not feel like home. All the apartments we looked at, I was like, nope, this isn't it. This isn't it. Not it. And luckily, my husband and I were on the same page. And we did what we had to do until we found the right place for us. And I couldn't be happier. So Lori and her family live in Malaga. And one of the big things about moving abroad is actually having that sense of home and feeling rooted, feeling settled. So I asked Lori if she feels settled yet. Settling into our life here has been a little bit challenging because of the pandemic. So we arrived still in full-blown pandemic. I had my original visions and this whole idea was planned during the pandemic. So it's not like I didn't think this was going to be an issue. But my dream of going to cafes and having my kids be in summer camp and all these things, none of that could happen when we got here. We basically had to hunker down and stay in our apartment. But the good thing was that Malaga is an outdoorsy city. So there are tons of restaurants that are already outdoor restaurants, right? So we could partake in a lot of outdoor experiences, meaning restaurants and things like that, and just walking and seeing people and things without fear of contamination, so to speak. But we couldn't go to the beach. There was too many people on the beach to be comfortably in a pandemic, right? Couldn't go to the pool, like the indoor pool. There was like a not a honeymoon period, but a like a holding period. So we couldn't integrate into the community, into society right away, even though we were eager to because of the pandemic. So the kind of settling in period has actually taken a little bit longer, but I was very impressed. Our children had to start school and Spain had pretty good COVID protocols in place. The children started school with masks. And again, it was great to be in this southern city because, you know, the windows of the school were like wide open all year long, no matter what. And we found out that both schools, my children went to separate schools because my daughter was in an elementary school. My son was in a high school. Both of their schools had no bad incidents of COVID contamination the year before. So my biggest concern, my children, like I said, speak Spanish, but they speak house Spanish, right? They don't speak European history Spanish or chemistry Spanish. It was going to be a real test to see would they be able to handle school at their respective age groups. And for my daughter, we found a lovely elementary school that was that's modeled off of Montessori. So lots of project-based learning, very small class sizes, they literally call in this neighborhood, they call it the hippie school because it's a group of parents, like nobody's wearing uniforms. They don't have to take religion, which is still very common in most Spanish schools. So she had a very easy experience integrating into her school life. The kids were so nice. She was invited to birthday parties and play dates right from the beginning. Again, her class size was so small, like everybody was invited and she really found herself making friends very quickly. She would talk about missing her friends in the States. But again, because of the pandemic, she hadn't seen her friends like in person for practically a year. So that was a good buffer for both of my kids. And I don't think that the transition would have been as easy if we hadn't left at the tail end of the pandemic where they had been away from their kind of cultural normal for a year anyway. So my daughter, again, she was 10 when we got here. She went into fifth grade and she ended up not that grades are everything and 
they're like, I said, it's a very like loosey goosey school. So no homework. And if she has a test, if she doesn't finish on the day they take the test, she can finish taking it the next day, which I really appreciate. And that's really not what I had heard Spanish schooling system was like. And this is an alternative school, even though it's a public school. But needless to say, she's had a wonderful, easy transition. My son, we had him repeat 11th grade. He finished 11th grade in the States. But again, it was a COVID year. He did the whole year in his bedroom. I don't know what he was learning, if he learned anything. So we figured redoing 11th grade would be fine. But also we knew he would need an extra year to catch up in Spanish because there was just no way he was going to be just to do a senior year. And not to mention, he wouldn't really get much out of it anyway. He's young. He's got a late birthday. So he's still going to finish high school when he's 18, blah, blah, blah. It was much more challenging for him. And all the research I did, people said, don't, you can't have your kids switch into Spanish high school. It's too hard. And Spanish high school is way harder than American high school. In fact, we're applying to colleges now for him. And many of the colleges, the European colleges, don't even accept an American diploma. You, unless you've taken a certain amount of AP credits, then it would be the equivalent to the Spanish diploma or the some of the other European diplomas. So he's actually learning a lot. It was very hard for him from the beginning. He failed every single exam his first quarter, second quarter. But by the last quarter, we were so proud of him. He passed everything. And we were just like, just pass. <laughs> Let's not aim for excellence. Pass. Because that shows that you know enough. And he did. And we were so proud of him. And he was so proud of himself, which this kid of mine is, he's not a high achiever, but he's tenacious. And he like refused to fail. And I just was so proud of him because Spanish high school is a lot of memorization. It's not like you could get credit for participating in the conversation. No, it's like you either passed the test or you didn't pass the test. And the test is, can you regurgitate what you learned from the textbook and from the lectures? We're not asking you to think, we're asking you to regurgitate. And so that's not how he learned in the United States, but he still was like, I'm not gonna let them see me fail. They're not gonna get me. There were some tears early on. There were definitely some tears. But I have been very impressed with both of my children because neither one of them have said, send me back, or why did you make us come here, or this is terrible. Their resilience astounds me, and I'm so proud of them because it's not like, I don't feel like I did anything special to make this transition. First of all, it was such a random like last-minute thing. I don't feel like I spent a lot of time prepping them for this. They just were ready for it. And I just am very thankful that it has been a positive experience for them both. Don't get me wrong. There have been tears, but very few comparatively speaking. And my husband has really just, he's just like a pig in shit. He's so happy to be home. Everything makes him happy. Even though we're still two hours from his family, he can just zip on home and see his parents. And he just loves just getting a coffee in the morning and some toast, which is a Spanish breakfast, toast. And he's just like, oh, let's go out for breakfast. I was like, you mean go out for toast? That's what we're excited about. But okay. It's like literally watching him come alive. Like my husband has been alive all this time, but I'm seeing him so happy. And I, again, I don't think he was unhappy in our lives in the States, but I see him being his full authentic self. And I see some things that I used to think were annoying. And I'm like, oh, it's his culture, right? Oh, that's just Spanish. And it's really cool to see that. And I think it's good for him because I'm definitely the dominant person in the family. And I'm the like, 
one in charge. And now I'm like, honey, can you drive me here? And can you make an appointment for me for the dentist? And can you come hold my hand in the dentist? And I don't know what he's saying. And I speak Spanish. My Spanish is fine. But like, I'm going to miss if he said I have a cavity. I'm not sure I know the word for cavity if I miss that. So he is, I'm the dependent one now. And I think he appreciates being able to, you know, th- those roles are completely swapped because he was the immigrant in the United States. I did have to take control of a lot. Now I'm like, the door is ringing. You should just get it because whoever's on the other side of it, I'm not going to know what they want. So you go ahead and get it. So that has also shifted our relationship in some ways, which is also, you know, you've been married for 20 some years, having a little shift in positionality in your relationship. It's good. It's all good. And it just keeps the adventure going. Like everybody told me, honeymoon period is going to wear off and you're going to get depressed or you're going to realize what you did. It hasn't happened. I don't think it's going to happen. I think I've passed through that. I'm like, I'm cool. I'm super happy. And I, again, I think I was prepared enough to know I'm just going to have a life that's different, not better. But I like difference. I thrive on difference. I enjoy difference. Still do the laundry. I still got to pay bills. I still got to work and make money. I got a dog. I got to pick up his poo. Like it's this same life, but it's just different. And that to me is super stimulating. And I highly recommend people shaking up their life around 49, 50, so that you don't fall into complacency and just wait for it all to end. I usually get asked, are there black people in Spain? Are there are there black people in Spain? There are black people. There are Afro-Spanish people, actually. But what a lot of people don't know is that Spain actually has a very rich history of black people living in the country and influencing the culture. And I am so delighted because Lori has an extensive research on this topic. And so I asked her to share just a little bit of what she has found with all of you now. My first book came out in 2001 and I had my son in 2001. Having just become a mother, I was like, I need to write about the way that Black and Spain fit together because I want to be able to leave a legacy for my son to explain his parents to explain the connection. And because I had such a negative like encounters with this idea that black, being black in Spain was a problem or challenging, I was like, how do I explain that to my black son? One day when we're in Spain, how do I prepare him or make him feel it's okay to be black in Spain, even if people are pointing at him or asking him dumb questions? Like, how do I be ready for that? And so I started trying to find my own, like to find the answers of where does black fit with Spain? Where does the African experience connect with Spain? I had no idea what that answer was. But as a journalist, I always am like, I will get paid to find the answer. So I pitched a story like a magazine article story to a black travel magazine. And I was like, would you send me to Spain to write an article investigating whether or not there were like African enslaved Africans in the South of Spain, because my hypothesis was the Spaniards like owned most of the slave ships. If you are picking up from the West coast of Africa and heading to the Americas, what's in the middle, the South of Spain. And I'm like, I know that most of the slave ships had to pay a tax to the Spanish government. 
So I'm like, they had to stop in the south of Spain where my husband is from. Let me go see. I bet you, I just wanted to go. I wanted a free trip to Spain and I wanted to see if I could find something. I was, it was just an itch. And so they said yes, which I was like, oh, for real? Okay, thank you. So um, I started researching. Like I, I reached out to some professors who had done some research about like black people in Spain. And again, I'm not even sure how I first, like that first nugget that I found, but it was this, this professor who worked in Cadiz and had written his dissertation on the fact that there were Africans in the South of Spain, in Cadiz in particular. And that began my journey. So that article just, I scratched the surface and then I couldn't stop. And I was just deeply interested in finding more information. And essentially what I discovered was that the the entirety of Spain, but in particular, the south of Spain, Cadiz and Sevilla in particular, had large populations of enslaved Africans who were either brought, kind of like I had predicted, en route from the, uh, Africa to the Americas. Because Spain was so flush with cash from exploiting South America, almost anybody in Cadiz and then Sevilla could afford a a black African slave, right? And so at one point, there were so many enslaved Africans in Sevilla, they referred to the city of Sevilla as the chessboard. Like that's what they called it because there were that many black to white, the ratio of black to white. And so I just kept researching and finding out more and it became just a passion project of mine. The last part of my memoir, Kinky Gaspacho, ends with that discovery, which makes me feel that in fact, I do have a place here. There is a black history in Spain, even if Spaniards aren't aware of it, which for a very long time they weren't because it was hidden. But God bless the Catholic Church because the Catholic Church registered all of the enslaved Africans because they baptized them all. So there is a record of all of these Africans who were in this country. Not only were they baptized, they often got godparents. So they were given godparents and like all of this is in the church. If you want to have some fun, go to the archives of these churches and these different cities and you can find this information and it's amazing. And so every time I can, anytime I can, I will research more. I found I have found churches and altars, all of this remnants of the black experience in Spain. And there's even and I'm certainly not the only one. There's more today. There's new documentaries, historians studying the influence of Africans on flamenco, which is that most Spanish of all Spanish music forms, they're saying that there is a true African influence in the beats, in the drums, even in the language. There's languages, particularly in the south of Spain, that are, these are African words. It's incredible. And it's like a pet project of mine. Like I have an Instagram page that, I mean, an Instagram account that's Black in Spain. And I did a radio documentary talking about the history of Black Spain and then the contemporary experience of Black people like yourselves who have chosen Black Americans and Black Brits in particular, who have chosen Spain as a landing place over countries where there's obviously a far more diverse Black population. If I had gotten that sabbatical in 2020, I was going to write a book. I was going to write a book about 
the black experience in Spain, starting with the enslaved Africans and going up through black Americans, including like the black Americans who came and fought in the civil war, black artists and writers who fled to Spain instead of Paris from the Harlem Renaissance through the fifties and sixties and really try to shed some light on the blackness that is in Spain. And I probably still will do that eventually. It's just something that just fascinates me. And again, me moving to this country, I feel it's my responsibility to define and highlight the Black impact, the Black influence in this country and in this culture. So Lori is an acclaimed writer, author, and was a tenured professor in the United States. And so I had to ask her the question that all of you are thinking of, which is, Lori, what do you do now? What do you do? You work, Lori? What do you do for work? You got a job out here in Spain. What's going on? And why did you give up that good tenured position at that university? The thing about moving and like upending your life, of course, the question everybody asks you is, "What are you going to do?" Because I'm not here retired. I don't like I mentioned earlier. I don't have a trust fund. I don't come from money. Before I left, I had to make a decision, like what's my work going to be? I was, like I said, I was in academia. I had a tenured position. I had worked my ass off to get tenure as a black woman with children. The likelihood of me getting tenure was something like 15%, like 75% of black women with children do not get tenure. So I was, I had done this amazing thing and was like contemplating walking away from it. So I had to ask myself, what is worth walking away from something like secure? And it's not just the security, it was the prestige of it. And I don't mean because I could walk around and be like, I'm tenured, but I was a symbol for other black women beneath me, below me coming up to say, you can do this. And there's a certain level of responsibility in that. And so I had to say, what is good enough for you to walk away from that? And so um, it really goes back to that time in Salamanca where it was like, what is your true passion? What is it that you haven't done yet? I had my babies. I've always wanted to be a mom. I wanted to be an author. I wrote my books. So what's left? The thing that was left was that dream that I had of being like a creative writer, of writing novels, of living abroad and following my bliss. And so I was like, the reason we can do that in Spain as opposed to the United States is because healthcare. I mean, it all comes down to healthcare. I don't have to have a quote unquote professional job to make sure my children get the healthcare that they need, right? And also I can send my children to college because it's not going to cost me $100,000 a year to do so. It's going to cost me a fraction of that in Spain. So once those two critical things were taken care of, I said, you can go have the life you've always dreamed of. You don't have to wait for your children to be gone and in retirement. You can live in Spain, which gives you access to the rest of the world. You can travel, you can see more world and experience all that culture that you're so excited about. And you can be a creative writer. That was so attractive to me, but it was funny because, and I think particularly for your audience and talking about wellness and flourishing abroad. It's not being abroad, it's thriving abroad, right, Christine? I'm like, I didn't know how to put my dream into practice because I am so used to being a worker bee. I didn't know what it would look like to have the freedom and flexibility to do whatever I wanted to lead a creative writer's life. 
So I had to spend like almost the entire first year that I was here unlearning that need to be busy 24 seven. I launched a business. I tried this. I tried that. I took on 800 clients because I'm like, oh my God, we're going to run out of money. All these things because I just didn't know how to make that vision of being a creative writer a reality. Thankfully, I hired this amazing strategist named Christine Job, who really just sat me down and said, what do you want your life to be like? What do you want your business to be about? Because you do have to make money. Let's understand that. I need to make money, but how do you want to do that? I knew I wanted to write and I knew I wanted to teach creative writing, but I didn't know just how to put it all together. And since that wonderful strategy session, I have launched my writing business. It's readwriteandcreate.com, readwriteandcreate.com. And basically, it is a sanctuary for BIPOC writers and readers. I have a blog and a podcast. The podcast and blog are both offering content that is meant to help people optimize their creative writing life with writing tips and hacks for living that life. And from experience, I know that a writer's life is not intuitive. You've got to be intentionally creative. You've got to be intentionally okay with resting and thinking and visualizing and doing other things to inspire your writing that may look like being lazy, but it's not. So the platform is really meant to provide that kind of inspiration and information to really help Black writers and other writers of color. Because my ministry is to bring more stories by Black writers and other writers of color to the world. I want more writers of color to get their stories out of their head and out into the world because I honestly, I believe that is the only way this world is going to ever heal. We need more stories. I think storytelling is one of the most powerful mechanisms for breaking down barriers and for creating empathy and change. So that's what the work is. And then I offer workshops, creative writing workshops and creativity workshops. I've already did really amazing multicultural memoir workshop. And I'll be doing more workshops in 2023, specifically for Black writers and other writers of color to take advantage of their own genius and giving them the real life tools that they need to get their writing out into the world. I'm all about sparking creativity, but more importantly, I want to give you the tools that you need to get your work published and or to get paid for your work so you can be a writer, a sustained writer. And my goal in 2023 also is to have my first in-person writing retreat, which I want to do that would combine writing and touring Black Spain, like touring some of the places in Southern Spain that have a significant Black history to them. So that is my stretch goal for 2023 is to make that happen. So that is bringing together all of my passion, skills, and interests and using them to serve others. But it brings me so much joy. It is what feels like my mission, my purpose, walking in my lane, all of those things. To be able to do that here and now really feels like I've hit the lottery. And My point, though, also is that even though this is a dream come true, it's hard to make that 
reality because we're so used to being told what to do or these are the parameters you have to work in. And it's like, there are no parameters. You can do whatever you want. Sometimes all of that freedom is overwhelming and it just doesn't come naturally until you undo so much learning that comes with being American. Soft life. To be honest, I've been having such a great time asking guests about soft life. Really great conversations. So good, in fact, I have to cut them all down just to be included in the episode. So maybe one day I'll just give you guys some juicy soft life episodes. So I asked Lori about her thoughts on Black girl soft life and if she feels as if she's living that soft life in Malaga. Well, I think the idea of soft life, I mean, I am 50 years old. It feels jargony to me. It feels like everybody's talking about soft life and this, that, the other. But you actually asked me this really key question when we were working together. And you said, what would it mean for you to work easily, for your work to come easily to you? And that question hit me like a ton of bricks. It seems so simple, but I never thought, like I was under the impression, like most people that work had to be hard. And I didn't think about that in a conscious way. So the idea of a soft life, again, I don't necessarily ascribe to the terminology just because I'm so old. And I feel like it's a new term for multiple iterations of different things. But I respect and understand the conversation, particularly as it relates to Black women. And it was because of a conversation I had with you, Christine, when you were helping me think about what it is I wanted to do and how I wanted to do it. Um, because I have struggling so much with this idea that whatever I do to make money, it's got to be like contrived. It's got to be business with a capital B and a brick. And you said, what would it mean to work easily? What would that look like for you if the work you did came easily? Not easily, because that feels like being lazy or conning people, something like, yo, if you just sell a course that's full of like something silly, then you're just making an easy buck. I don't want that. But you said easily. And certain things do come to me easily, like teaching writing. It's some, it's a passion. Writing itself comes easily. Talking about black hair and race and identity like comes easily and it empowers me and it makes me, it inspires me to have these conversations to do these things. And so having a soft life, if you will, is really reminding myself that there are many skills and talents that I have from years of experience and work, hard work and sacrifices here and there, but I can enjoy my life. I can do things that bring me as much joy as they are serving somebody else and wake up in the morning and not feel like the day is going to drain me, but to be excited about what it is I'm doing in a way that's not, again, I'm going to have a headache by the end of the day. I'm going to need to eat a lot of chocolate by the end of the day or whatever it is to like numb the pain of whatever it is I have to do. I feel like if somebody asked how would I define a soft life, I would really be like a life without resistance. And that, you know, that you don't have to fight 
you don't have to fight yourself, right? You don't have to fight. There's no fight in the process of your life, whatever it is. And sometimes it's just as simple as, you know what? I don't feel like doing this laundry right now. It's okay. The laundry is going to get clean, but it doesn't have to be done right now. I don't have to take this client because this client's going to drive me crazy and something else is going to take its place and it's going to be okay. It's like trying to move through life without resistance, right? Like trying to get rid of those places of resistance. That is, to me, what a soft life is. Wellness. I asked Lori to share with all of us her personal definition of wellness and how living abroad has influenced and evolved her practice of wellness. My personal definition of wellness is freedom. It's freedom. And I'll explain. So wellness to me has two components, both physical and mental. For me, being well means being free to do whatever I want physically. In other words, I want to eat that cream puff. I want to eat those Doritos. I want to eat that pizza. I want to eat whatever, that spicy food and be okay that it's not going to, you know, disrupt my body, right? Like I don't have ailments that prevent me from being free to indulge in whatever I want to indulge in. Physically, I want to go climb that mountain. I live now, there's mountains all around me. I want to go climb that mountain. I want to do the Camino de Santiago. And if I am well, I can do it physically. Like I am free to pursue all of the things physically because I am well right? I have taken care of myself. So for me, physically, that means walking. It means going to getting massages on a regular basis. It means sleeping at a regular time. It means eating very healthy food, like all of the things that I need to do to be physically well, so I can be free. I can be free physically. Like I am not limited by any sort of physical limitations. And then free, like mentally, where that comes in is also being able to do what I want, when I want, and how I want. That is my idea. And that is my idea of wellness. And I'm not there yet because my life is not arranged in that way yet perfectly, but I'm working towards that. And I try that in smaller ways of do I want to do this right now? Do I feel like doing this right now? The idea of my of perfection, of freedom is when I can wake up when I feel like it and I can teach the classes I want to and I can engage with, you know, maybe talking to somebody down the street, you know, because that's going to inspire me to do this or that, but to really go with the rhythms of my desires. That is the ideal place of wellness. Thank you so much, Lori, for sharing your magnificent story with all of us. If you're interested in keeping up with Lori, you can via social media. They can find the Read, Write, and Create podcast and my um, website, readwriteandcreate.com. And you can follow me on the uh, socials with my name, Lori L. Tharps on Instagram. That's at Lori, L-O-R-I. L, my middle initial, and then Tharps, T-H-A-R-P-S. And on Twitter, just at Lori Tharps, no middle initial. So either at Lori Tharps on Twitter or at Lori L Tharps on Instagram and readwriteandcreate.com. 
Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Flourish in the Foreign. And for more information about our guest, be sure to check out this episode's show notes on the website, flourishtotheforeign.com. That's where you'll see pictures, a full bio, and ways that you can connect with this guest. If you or someone you know may be interested in being a guest on the podcast, I invite you to submit the guest inquiry form, which can be found at flourishintheforeign.com slash contact. And as always, big thanks to Zachary Higgs, who produced the music of this here podcast. Remember, it's not about moving abroad. It's not about being abroad. It's about flourishing abroad. So go abroad and cultivate a life well lived. See you next time.